No one likes uncertainty, right? I mean, from an early age, we seek to resolve this inevitable tension that results from uncertainty. It's part of what drives the endless questions of young children. I mean, in their quest to understand the world around them, they want to find answers and resolve the tension of their uncertainty. It's why millions of people check the weather every day. Now, some of you actually check the weather multiple times a day, throughout the day, to just ensure the fact that you always have the proper attire, the right accompaniments to face the elements. Psychologists uh, tell us that uncertainty resolution is one of the driving determinations of our behavior. We do the things that we do often to resolve that tension of uncertainty. Maria Konnikova, who's a New York Times bestselling author with a PhD in psychology from Columbia University, writes this. The human mind is incredibly averse to uncertainty and ambiguity. From an early age, we respond to uncertainty or lack of clarity by spontaneously generating plausible expectations. What's more, we hold on to these invented explanations as having some intrinsic value of their own. And once we have them, we don't like to let them go. What she's addressing here is that humans have this need for closure, a need for answers, a need for an order, something to resolve the tension of the unknown. And this morning, as we come to this third paragraph in the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we come to a, an element of great uncertainty in the church. See, of all of the members of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the one where uncertainty tends to abound. Because see, regardless of our experience with our own fathers or as our experience as being sons and daughters, we at least have a category for understanding fatherhood and sonship and family. But when it comes to the Spirit, we're less familiar. We don't have these categories that, that, that we've interacted with. And in, in our uncertainty, we seek to resolve the tension of the Spirit. So one of the ways that people tend to resolve this tension is by avoiding the Holy Spirit altogether. One of the ways we do that is simply to overlook the Spirit and kind of functionally kick Him out of the Holy Trinity so that it becomes the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Get that? Others resolve the tensions by filling in the blanks, jumping to quick conclusions just to have an answer. And so instead of doing careful study in the scriptures about the person and the work of the Spirit, we accept traditions or we just come to quick conclusions that are usually um, not rooted in theology and rooted in scripture. So my hope today as we look at the person of the Spirit is to avoid the extremes of either pole, ignoring him and overlooking him altogether, or um, just coming to quick, rash conclusions. And so we're going to look at the scriptures together to get to know the person of the Spirit, to see who he is. Then we're going to look at the power of the Spirit, to see that the Spirit moves with great power. And then finally, we'll look at what it looks like to experience the presence of the Spirit. So we'll look at the person of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and the presence of the Spirit. So look with me at John chapter 14, verse 26, as we begin to look at the person of the Spirit. John writes this, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Now, in this verse, we, we, we enter into this scene where Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and it's the night of his betrayal. He's about to go to the cross, and he has this extended dialogue with his disciples, and they're observing the Passover meal for the last time. You can imagine Jesus has walked with these guys for years, and now it's coming to the end, and, he, and he's telling them, explaining some, some very important matters to them. And Jesus is telling them, for the umpteenth time that he's going to leave them because he needs to continue his mission. He's going to go to the cross and die. But in his physical absence, as he ascends to the Father, he tells them the helper, the Holy Spirit, will come. Now in this dialogue, if you read it, you'll see three different people that he's talking to. We see the Father who is sending the Spirit. We see that the Spirit is going to be doing this ministry of teaching. And you see Jesus speaking about this. See, this Trinitarian reality of God that we've been looking at over the last several weeks in our Apostles' Creed series is all over the Bible. You really can't escape it. And so I want to help us to remember that definition of the Trinity that we've been borrowing from the New City Catechism. We'll have the words on the screen. To understand the Trinity, you need to grab, you need to grasp this definition. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. God is one being with three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, they're equal in power. They're equal in their glory. They're unified in their purposes. When they, when they, when they want to do something, they work together. They have the same mission. There's diversity in their roles and responsibilities but there's unity that brings it all together. And understanding that brings us to that first reality that we're looking at is that the Spirit is a person, not a force. He's a he, not an it. Do you see the, did you see the personal pronouns in verse 26? Jesus said, he will teach you. In fact, every time the Spirit is mentioned in Scripture with a pronoun, he is used. It's a personal pronoun pronoun. And what's interesting about that, and this is a little grammar lesson for you, the word for spirit in Greek is the Greek word pneuma. And it can mean wind, it can mean breath, and it can also mean spirit. And the word itself, pneuma, takes what's called a gender, uh, a, a, a neuter gender. So here's what that means. In Greek, maybe you've studied other um, foreign languages and you'll recognize some of this, but all nouns are classified to their grammatical gender. There's feminine nouns, there's masculine nouns, and then there's neuter nouns. It's the masculine nouns use he, feminine nouns use she, and neuter nouns use what? It. Okay? Keep up with me. All right? Now, here's why that mini lesson in Greek grammar is significant. When Jesus uses he to refer to the spirit, he is stepping over good grammar for better theology. It would make grammatical sense for Jesus to refer to the spirit as an it because it's a neuter noun. It's supposed to use an it. But Jesus steps over that good grammar and says, no, no, the spirit is a person. I don't want you to miss it. And so I'm going to do something bad grammatically so that you don't miss the good theology. The spirit is is a person, not an impersonal force. Jesus knows the Spirit isn't an it. He's had fellowship with the Spirit from before there was time. He's a person, and so he uses the personal pronoun, he. 
Now, this tempta- the temptation is, when we come to the Spirit, is to reduce the personhood of the Spirit to an impersonal force like something out of Star Wars, right? According to Wikipedia, and yes, that is a real thing, the force is a metaphysical power in the Star Wars universe. It's an energy field created by all living things. Now, that may work for the Jedi, but that doesn't work for Christians. That's really bad theology. The spirit is not an impersonal energy field that we can manipulate by calling and conjuring up our uh, inner being. The spirit is a person. Now look with me at John chapter 16. Aaron read the passage beautifully for us. We're going to look at verses 7 through 15. And as I read it, I want you to look for the personal pronouns used to describe the spirit. Let's see if you can count how many there are, and I want you to also look at the names given by the Spirit, and I want you to see the actions, the verbs that the Spirit performs. You didn't know you were getting a sermon and some grammar lessons today. That's a two-for-one special. All right, I'm going to read it with emphasis, okay? John 16, verses 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus keeps on going. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will hear, uh, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I counted 11 personal pronouns, he and him being attributed to the Spirit. He's called the helper and the spirit of truth. Listen to the actions he performs. He is sent. He comes. He convicts. He guides. He hears. He speaks. He declares. He glorifies. He takes. He declares. Elsewhere in scripture, we see that the spirit can be lied to. He can be grieved. And he can be obeyed. All of this begs us to see that the spirit is a he, not an it. He is a person. And as a full member of the Trinity, he is fully God. Let me quickly go over some other passages of scripture with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Paul's describing this ministry of the spirit as he conforms us and makes us and molds us into the image of Christ. And Paul calls him the Lord. Now, when you see the word the Lord in your Bible, you need to know it is packed with meaning. It's a pregnant word. Its history goes all the way back to the time of the Exodus when God revealed his personal name to Moses. That name is Yahweh. Now that name was so sacred and so special that the Jews dared not to write it down. And so in place of Yahweh, they wrote the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. 
In Greek, it's kurios. In English, it's Lord. And so when Paul writes, the Spirit is Lord, he's, he's actually making us re- reference back to that word Yahweh. He's connecting the person of the Spirit to the person of Yahweh, who is God himself. The point being, Yahweh is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. He is the Lord. That's a significant uh, correlation there. In Acts chapter 5, Luke directly calls the Holy Spirit God. It's an intense scene in the early life of the church. There's a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira who sell, who sell a piece of property and they lie about how much they get on the sale of that house and they give uh, a portion to, uh, to the church. And so they, they basically say, hey, we sold this house for a lot of money and you know what? Out of the generosity of our spirits, we gave all of it to the church. See, what they're trying to do is create this reputation for themselves, creating a a name for themselves that's based on a lie. And they wanted to do so without the sacrifice that actually comes with selling a piece of property and giving the whole sum of that sale to the church. See, the issue wasn't that they kept some back for themselves. That would have been fine, right? The issue was that they lied about what they made and tried to create this reputation so that when Ananias and Sapphira walk by, people will go, oh, man, they are so generous. Man, look at their hearts, how they gave all this money to the church. Look what Luke says about what happened. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to man, but to God. See how he makes that connection there? See, the lie wasn't to an impersonal force. A force can't get offended, but God is offended by our lies and attempts to create false reputations. I'll let you read to see what happens to them on your own time. It doesn't work out well for them. Let's look at um, Matthew 28, verse 19. Matthew writes, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's another verse that we come to. See, Christians are to be identified in baptism with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Our identity is grounded in a Trinitarian God. It's not just that we would be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son, but it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. Not only that, but the scriptures describe the Spirit as having the same attributes as God the Father and God the Son. Look with me. We've got them up here on the screen. The scriptures talk about how the Spirit is eternal, how he's omnipotent, how he's omnipresent, how he's omniscient, and how the Spirit is holy. He's described with the exact same attributes of God. We'll leave this this, uh, slide up for a couple of minutes so you can write those things down. I'd encourage you this week sometime, look up those passages, learn more about the Holy Spirit. He is fully and truly God. What we need to grab a hold, the, the truth that we need to grab a hold of right now is the Holy Spirit is fully God. He is a person who possesses the same divine attributes as the Father and as the Son. And as such, the Spirit is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our prayer. And as a person, he's someone we can know and have a relationship with. 
So as a person, we have to avoid the two poles. The first error is to ignore him altogether. In studying for this sermon, I was amazed at how much the Bible has to say about the person of the Spirit. So much that I, I couldn't pack it all in to one sermon. In fact, there were verses I had read before that taught about the Holy Spirit, but I had just overlooked the Spirit to see Jesus or to see some attribute of the Father or to see something else. I was really convicted that I have a tendency to avoid and ignore the Spirit. And by God's grace, that conviction actually came from the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. He convicts and shows us what is good and true and beautiful. Now, the other error is to reduce the Spirit to this metaphysical force that we can kind of conjure up. If we just say the right mantras, if we just um, um, do the right things, now we can wield the power of the Spirit. He is not a force to be manipulated for our own purposes. He is God, and he should be treated as such. He should be revered. He can be known. He should be listened to, worshiped, and obeyed. He should be loved and cherished. The Spirit is a person. Not only is he a person, but now let's look over at the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. One of the most frequent ways the Spirit is described is with the word power. The Spirit is powerful. In fact, power is so closely associated with the Holy Spirit that the words power and Spirit show up together frequently um, throughout the Bible. Now, I just made this strong case not to reduce the person of the Spirit into this, this attribute of his power, this metaphysical force or energy, because we, can, we, we can't so overemphasize his power that we strip him of his personality. But at the same time, we can't go to the other extreme where we put the personality of the spirit at odds with the power of the spirit. Because the spirit is described as powerful. He comes and moves with power. Let me show you. I'm going to give you a quick overview throughout the Bible where we see the spirit moving um, in power. We see the spirit of the, the power of the spirit at work in several key ways throughout the Bible. We'll see that he has the power to create, that he has the power to regenerate, and the power to empower. So let's first look at his creative power. Look at me at Genesis 1, chap, uh, uh, Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You can't get two sentences into the Bible before you get to the Spirit. He's in the second sentence, and we see the Holy Spirit involved in, in, uh, in the work of creation. So in verse 1, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates this unformed, unfilled substance, the kind of the raw materials. And at this point in the Bible, the Spirit is kind of hovering over this uncreated, unformed, unfilled thing. And the Hebrew word to describe that is tohu wabohu. Now what this phrase means is empty, unformed, chaotic wilderness. And it's in this uninhabitable wasteland that life could not exist or even survive. And so the, you see the spirit is hovering over this tohu wabahu, this empty, unformed wilderness. Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie in her book, Even Better Than Eden, writes this. There were three significant problems with the earth as God initially created it, this unformed thing. It was formless, empty, and dark, but it was not without hope. Why? 
because the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As we read on, we see that the Spirit has this divine power to create. And so he brings light where there's darkness, life where there's void, order where there's chaos, fullness where there was emptiness. Psalm 33, 6 says it like this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath, the ruach, the spirit of his mouth, all their hosts. Here we see the word that we find out in John chapter 1. Remember that sermon? That the Son of God is the word. And we also now here see the breath of God, which is the spirit of God working with the Father to create. And it's the power of the spirit that creates and sustains life. So that wherever the spirit of God goes, he brings life, order, and beauty. When the spirit of God hovers over something, he brings life, fullness, and beauty. Next, we see the power of the spirit in regeneration. That word regeneration means to be generated again or born again. All of us have been generated once. We were born And now the Bible talks about this need to be born again. You'll see this sometimes referred to as restoration or renewal or recreation. It's all getting at the same idea that everyone needs to be born again. And it's it's precisely this topic of regeneration that Jesus has with a rabbi named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So Rabbi Nicodemus is intrigued by Jesus. He sees that there's this power of Jesus to do these many wondrous signs. So he comes to him and says, tell me more about who you are and what you're up to. And we catch this conversation in John chapter 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus tells him that in order to, be, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Now, let's not give Nicodemus a hard time, right? Because he's like, uh, Jesus, I hear what you're saying. That sounds impossible. So he kind of teased it up for Jesus. He says, Jesus, I can't re-enter my mother's womb. I'm too big and that would be way too awkward, (laughs) right? Jesus tells him, no, 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 I'm not talking about another physical birth. I'm talking about a second birth, a spiritual birth, a new birth, a rebirth that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul picks up this language in Titus 3. We actually had this uh, in our um, uh, our uh, affirmation of pardon today, our assurance of of, of salvation. Titus 3 says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I love it, man. Paul doesn't hold anything back. He tells it like it is without the niceties and vague language like we do when we talk about our sin. He says, that's who you are, apart from Christ. Now look what he says what happens when God comes into your life. Verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God shows up in his goodness and loving kindness, and he saves us. Paul says, not because of our own good works, not because we did some good things to earn his favor, but simply and incredibly because of the mercy of God. He saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, according to his love alone. We are justified. We're made righteous, declared to be so because of Jesus. We're forgiven of our sins because Jesus took the punishment we deserved. That's it. That's how we're saved. Sin has to be punished. And Jesus said, take me instead. And then Paul describes, and I want to hone in on the application of our redemption and forgiveness. Did you hear what he said? That we're washed, regenerated, and renewed by the Holy Spirit. That sounds just like what John said, that we need to be born again, washed in the water and of the Spirit. Jesus said we can't enter the kingdom unless we're born of water and spirit. Here Paul says the Spirit washes us. That means he cleanses us from our sin and he causes us to be born again, regenerated. And what happens is that we become new creations. The old is gone. The old has passed away and new life has come. The power of the Spirit is to create and bring life and order into the chaos. And he does that work of recreation and restoration and regeneration with sinners like you and me. You remember that Hebrew word I taught you earlier? Tohu wabahu, that unformed pre-creation, the empty, unformed, chaotic wilderness. And the same spirit that hovered over the face of the waters as he was creating ho- hovers over you and me. He takes the empty, unformed, chaotic wilderness of our soul and brings life and fullness and beauty and order. I was moved by a uh, uh, the story uh, in the 15th century, there was a um, Japanese shogun named Ashikaga Yoshimasa. And he had this prized Chinese tea bowl that he acquired, and it was precious to him. And one day, it broke. And so instead of just going and getting another one, ordering it on Amazon, <laughs> he sent it back to China to be repaired. And as the story goes, it came back to him with these clunky ugly metal brackets on it and he looked at this beautiful tea bowl and he said that's not going to do and so he commissioned an artisan to try something better and the artisan took the broken pieces and he carefully glued them back together but he didn't just use any old everyday regular glue he took that glue and he mixed 24 karat gold into it so that the glue as it was formed and these new seams were sealed they gave it beauty and character And a new art form was born that day called kintsugi. The word kintsugi means golden joinery. I've got a picture of um, some kintsugi. You see how the the bowl's been broken yet, but it's been brought together with this kintsugi, this golden joinery. See, kintsugi doesn't see the brokenness as something to throw away or even as something to disguise. I mean, you can see exactly where the fault lines are. Rather, it sees the brokenness as part of the history of this object. And so with care, this 
bowl is reformed and remade and regenerated, so to speak, with gold. And the result is a bowl or a vase that's more beautiful, more aesthetically complex, more valuable than the original piece. It's a beautiful picture of the grace of God as he regenerates us, recreates us, reforms us. See, the Holy Spirit works to take what is broken and put us back together again, lacing us with pure gold so that we become more valuable, I would say more human than we were before. That's the power of the Spirit to regenerate. But the Spirit also is one who has the power to empower See, we see the power of the Spirit in our lives as regenerated believers. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul prays that believers would experience the power of the Holy Spirit, and his power works in us and through us. See, when we're filled with the power of the Spirit, we are empowered to grow spiritually, to serve faithfully, and to walk humbly with our God. See, the Spirit doesn't power us so that we take on these superpowers and become superheroes. I love superhero movies as much as the next guy, but that's not what the power of the Spirit does in us. This is Spirit-empowered gospel fuel that produces godly wisdom, increased understanding, and grace-filled living with all the fruit of the Spirit, so that we grow in love and joy and peace and patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, we're filled with the Spirit, not so that um, we can uh, perform these miraculous acts, but so that we can grow in holiness. Paul here specifically says that the result of being strengthened with the power of the Spirit helps us comprehend the love of Christ. Paul's saying that the love of Christ is so incredible. It's so vast, it's so wide, it's so deep. You need the power of the Spirit just to begin to get a grasp of the love of Christ for you. It takes spirit power to understand the love of Jesus. Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we see Jesus telling his disciples uh, that it takes power to be his witnesses. It takes Holy Spirit power to live out the mission of being a disciple, and that power comes with the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that this power of the Spirit wasn't just to these original disciples, because see, when the Spirit eventually came at Pentecost, you can read about this in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit filled everyone there, and the gospel spread like wildfire all throughout the Roman Empire. What started with 120 people in 300 years, half of the Roman Empire were Christians. It, was, it, it so overtook the Roman Empire that it became the official religion of the empire, despite the fact that the empire sought to systemically uh, squash this little tiny movement coming out of Jerusalem. Now, before we move on to look at the presence of the Spirit, I want to quickly ask, 
What other sources of power do we rely on instead of asking for and relying on the power of the Spirit to work in us and through us? Because see, that same power of the Spirit that uh, allowed the gospel to advance and spread like wildfire wasn't something just for then. It's actually available to us right now. Did you know that Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, relied on the power of the Spirit throughout his life? It's one of the more shocking things to me. Because you would think, being fully God, Jesus doesn't need the help of the Spirit. But look what Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out throughout all the surrounding country. There's many more scriptures that talk about Jesus moving in the power of the Spirit. I had to limit it to just a couple today to show that Jesus worked and lived in the power of the Spirit. He used the power of the Spirit when he was faced with temptation. He taught by the power of the Spirit. He ministered by the power of the Spirit. Jesus had a power in himself, but he lived in the power of the Spirit as an example to us that we should rely on the power of the Spirit. So I'll ask again, what are the other sources of power that we rely on instead of asking for the power of the Spirit to empower us and fill us? Maybe for some of you, it's reason and strategy, right? The idea is if I can come up with a foolproof plan, I won't need any extra help. I'll have nothing else to worry about. That's mine. I think if I can think through it better, if I can just strategize, I won't need the help. I won't have to bother him. What about relationships? The idea here being that if I have the right people around me, I can depend on them and I won't have to depend on God. Or maybe you find it in possessions and money. The idea here is if I have the right resources around me, I won't ever have any kind of needs. Whatever comes up, I can just pay for it. See, all of these are just various examples of ways we lean on self-reliance instead of Holy Spirit reliance. See, the Spirit of the living God makes himself available to us, and often we're content to do life on our own with our own strength and our own power. I think God, the Holy Spirit, as he was superintending creation, made it such that I would preach this sermon because it's so hard for me to rely on the power of the Spirit. Seven Mile, I am praying that we will become a spirit-dependent people who seek the presence of the Spirit and accept his generous gift of his power for our day-to-day lives. Now that brings us to our final point this morning, the presence of the Spirit. John 14, 16, and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit will dwell with you and will be in you. Did you know that God has always desired to dwell with his people? It's kind of the whole point of creation, right? He didn't create out of need. He created out of desire to dwell with his people. That's the whole point of the garden. Adam and Eve walking with God, dwelling with him, experiencing an intimacy of relationship and a nearness to him. Right, it started when he was, they were formed by his hand. They were animated by his breath, his ruach, his spirit. 
And then the entrance of sin in the garden broke that nearness and intimacy. And God, really, if you read through the Bible, has been working ever since so that the dwelling place of God would be with man once again. And in the Old Testament, you start to see glimpses of of God working through his people, especially at these mission-critical moments. So you see the Spirit empowering leaders and being with the prophets. We see the tabernacle created in the temple where God's presence dwells among the people. But it's not this widespread presence. You've got to go to this physical location in order to experience the presence of God. And there's this longing that the presence of God would one day again become widespread. In fact, the prophet Joel says, one day there's coming a day when God's spirit will be poured out in abundance. No longer will you have to go to a certain physical place to experience the presence of God, but his presence will be poured out in abundance. And then when we fast forward to the New Testament with Jesus, at the end of his ministry, before he ascends, he gathers his disciples together and he breathes on them. In this intimate, close moment, John 20, verse 22, says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus told them that when I leave, I'm going to give you the help of the Holy Spirit. And he breathes that life into them. Now think about it. The first Adam received God's breath. He received the spirit of God and uh, it took that formless, that, that dust, that lifeless dust and it became life. Now the second Adam, Jesus, breathes out the promised spirit and they're filled. And what do you start to see happening in their lives? They start to live out the fruit of the spirit. They start to live these empowered lives as they experience his presence. It's almost like God is creating a new garden all over again, abundant fruit growing in this new garden, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this seal is a mark of ownership, of authenticity. It's saying we belong to God and we are his people. It was used in um, cattle branding. That they, you would seal a, 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 a piece of livestock to say this, this is my cattle. You can't lie about it. Look, my brand, my mark is there. And so when God wants to identify and mark his people, he gives them the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's it's his presence that marks us and that sets us apart as his people. And not only that, Paul says that the spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. See, in giving us the spirit, God's not merely promising to us our final inheritance, which he is. But he's also giving us a foretaste of that experience and that that, that inheritance now. See, by giving us the Spirit now, today, we begin to get to experience the presence of God. Not in some future day, but today. Today, you and I can experience the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? I've got some helpful ways that we can begin to experience the Spirit. The first thing is we need to slow down and simply make time for Him in prayer. Jonathan Dotson is helpful here. He says, a slow mouth and an unhurried heart 
can put us in the presence of God. So that also means, conversely, a quick mouth and a hurried heart will not put us in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but sometimes my prayer times look like that. I've got a lot to say, and I've got a short window to do it, and then I've got to move on to the next thing in my day. In our noisy and busy world, we simply just don't know how to sit and be still. We have to fight for this unhurried time until it becomes habit, until we see it as our actual lifeline. And when we sit down, we need to pray. We need to bring our request to him. We need to pray through our calendar and our agendas for the day, asking for the Spirit's wisdom and his guidance and his prompting. We need to tell him about our hopes and our dreams. We need to tell him about our fears and our struggles. I mean, think about it. The Spirit's nicknames are helper and comforter. The very names themselves are relational names that beg us to come to him and to relate with him, and to talk to him, and to tell him about what we're facing and what we're going through. And then we need to be quiet, and we need to listen, and we need to hear. And second, we need to spend time in his word. The Bible tells us that the scriptures themselves are breathed out by the spirit of God. So they're his words, which means we can learn a lot about who God is and who we are and how we're to live by spending time in his word. See, his word becomes the standard by which we discern those promptings of the spirit. As we start to listen and we start to hear things from the spirit and we ask, is that my voice or is that the spirit's voice? The best way to discern that is by knowing his word. It's the spirit's word. And we can judge what we're hearing based on the scriptures. Why? Because the Spirit will never tell you something that contradicts what he's already said in his word. A lot of times we try to guess, like, what is the Spirit saying? It's like, he wrote it down on like 1,600 pages. There's a lot there to read and to understand and to know. And as we, and I mean we, like the church, as we become a Spirit-formed and a Word-formed people, we actually begin to help each other as a community to provide good counsel and wisdom as we're discerning and processing those calls together. We can do that in community. And as we become a word-formed people, we're actually able to go, oh, hey, actually in, in, uh, in this book of the Bible, in these verses, what you're saying contradicts that. So I don't know that that's a good idea. And it might be a passage that, that you weren't as familiar with, but as a community word-form people, we're able to help one another. And as you spend time praying with the Spirit, as you spend time reading, remember this. The Spirit is a floodlight, shining the light on Jesus so that we see him in all his truth and all his goodness and all his beauty and all his glory. I know that sounds rather simplistic, and it is. It's not meant to be complicated. Spend time with God in word and prayer and put the focus on Christ, right? That seems like, like it can't be that simple. But it's easy to say, it's easy to remember, but come Monday, the tasks will start demanding our attention. Notifications are going to run wild. Responsibilities will demand our energy. And before you know it, the week is over. And once again, we've left this invitation from God to spend time with him, to know him, to be empowered by him. We've left it unopened on the table. 
brother and sister, let's be a people who seek the presence of God together. That same spirit who, show, who shined light into your darkness, who brought life in your emptiness, who brought order to the chaos of your soul, who caused you to be born again to a living hope, that same spirit is here now. Fullness of life is lived in the spirit. He hasn't left you. He didn't do a new work then to just leave you. He knows that we're still impacted by sin. We're still impacted by the destructive forces in this world, which means we still need the power of the spirit and the nearness of his presence in our lives today. So maybe you've experienced stinging loss in your life. Maybe the plans that you've written out and dreamed of haven't worked out the way you've hoped. Maybe there's a profound sense of emptiness that you just can't put your finger on that seems to linger. Brother and sister, the Holy Spirit is here today, right here, right now, to soothe and fill again. He continues to bring life and fullness wherever he goes. He takes the empty and he fills it up. He takes the nothing and he makes it something. He takes the chaos and he brings order. He takes our hurts and he brings about beauty. That's the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't see your emptiness as an obstacle, but he sees it as an opportunity to fill you with himself. Seven mile, let's be a people who are empowered by the Spirit and seek his presence that we may enjoy him.